It's go time. Previously on Third Down Gamble. Three downs, the movement, the, all, all those things, you know, the, with the waggle and the rouge. And I, we're all fine with all of that. I would like the XFL, CFL, whatever that is, to be as un-NFL light as it possibly can be. To differentiate a little bit more than just like, well, they play in the spring and their players aren't as big a names. You are listening live to Quick Kicks, a presentation of Third Down Gamble. Welcome everyone to Quick Kicks, and my special guest tonight is Rob Vanstone, Regina Leader Post. Rob, great to have you on the episode. Uh, great to be with you, Don. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. For those of you who aren't from Saskatchewan, you're pretty much a staple in terms of the CFL and what gets covered. I guess I'm getting old enough to be a staple. It's amazing how fast it's gone. May, May 12th is my 35th anniversary of my, 30, the 35th anniversary of the first day of my first summer job back in 1986. I still think of myself as the kid that grew up reading the paper and grew up reading Bob Hughes and Arnie Tiefenbach and Dale Eisler and, and uh, Mel Isaac, Murray Mandrick, who's still there. <laughs> and it still blows me away when I realize that I've somehow managed to enjoy some longevity there because it, it has gone by so quickly. I still feel like I just got there. I'm kind of glad I still have that attitude, but uh, a lot of people seem to say lately, I've been reading you for a long time, and maybe I, I'm not sure whether that means they've been consistently reading my stories as they come, or it just take that long to get through one of my articles, but uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> what got you into journalism in the first place? And you mentioned just before we got on the show that you worked at the Carillon, the U of R, yeah. or volunteered there. What brought that interest out in you? Well, it was sort of a hybrid of what I like to do. Growing up, I loved sports. I still that person, basically. And I love to read. And uh, any, any opportunity I got in elementary school to, to write something creatively or just something different, not, you know, not, not write a test or just write something that I'm creating. I just I, I loved it and I seized it. My mom instilled in me a love of sports because we went to rider games as far back as I can remember. I went to my, I've, I've used this line way too often, but I went to my first rider game in 1963 and I was born in 1964 because my mom was pregnant when she took me. I was at the Little Miracle of Taylor Field game in 1963, and uh, I'm proud to say I was there, sort of. So that was that's where I got the love of sports, and uh, I got the love of reading, which I think translated into a love of writing from my dad, who was a very avid reader. He loved to read science fiction, I, Isaac Asimov especially, and he was a voracious reader. Because of that, it just seemed to be a merger of the things that I enjoyed. I liked watching sports. I liked playing them but I just, I just like sports all around and I like to read about sports and I'd like to write about sports and ultimately I want to be the person who was read when uh, discussing sports or writing about them so uh, that, that was kind of it, it re there was really nothing else I aspired to do I, I grew up reading the leader post you know 50 years ago I still remember the first time I ever read, read the leader post there was a story in the sports section on a receiver with the Edmonton Eskimos named Terry Swarn S-W-A-R-N and uh, my neighbor, Tom Fuseshi, pointed out to me that there was a sports section in the, uh, in the Leader Post. I always just saw my dad reading the paper, and I just thought it was just all news because dad didn't care about sports. And, uh, oh, there's sports in here? Beginning the summer of 1971, it was, I started reading the Leader Post sports section. And that, I think that gave me, a, a, even when I was seven years old, a target of where to, where to shoot for and uh, what to shoot for and what to aspire to. And as, as I 
became uh, more and more of a sports fan, got more and more into the Rough Riders. And then that, that was the absolute heyday of Bob Hughes and everything that Bob Hughes wrote. I just not only read, but put in a scrapbook. I still got all the scrapbooks upstairs. And uh, so I just wanted, I just wanted to be that. I wanted to be a sports writer. And not only that, I wanted to do it in Regina. I had the narrowest focus of any goal you can have. And uh, I still can't believe some days that I, I pulled off this little miracle of mine where I, you know, there's not many, there's not many sports writing jobs in Regina. You're really limiting your options when you think, okay, not only do I want to do this, but I want to do this in this place. Somehow I fooled them and <laughs> still fooling them. So don't tell management, but I'm fooling them. Well, you, you started with the little miracle in 1963 with Saskatchewan versus Calgary. Maybe there was karma in all of that. It's kind of funny. I, I, I'm not sure if that was the first game I went to, but it would have been one of the first because I was born March 30th, 64, and I was two months premature. Some people would tell me that's the first time. That might be the only time or the last time I've been early for anything. And um, I'm still immature. Uh, so I figured, okay, what's March 30th minus seven months? That's around Labor Day weekend, um, 1963, uh, I would have been... Uh, conceived. So I, I imagine I'd gone to a few games, uh, especially when you consider that the season didn't really get rolling until late July back then. I probably went to, I would guess, three or four, five games uh, that during the rookie year of George Reed, the first year here of Ron Lancaster. I, for all I know, I was at Hugh Campbell's first game as a rough rider because he arrived in the fall of, of uh, 1963 after being cut by the San Francisco 49ers. But mom, mom back then usually went to say half the games with friends we didn't get season tickets till 1975 pardon me 1976 we went to every game in 1975 we bought tickets for each each game and then the following year we got season tickets taylor field section 10 row 10 seat 10 on the 10 yard line how perfect is that and uh, it really doesn't feel like a job because what i am doing is what I, what my hobby would have been. I'm going to sporting events that I would be at anyway, things that I went to before I got this job back in the days, you know, when you could actually go to sporting events, but uh, hopefully they're returning soon. So in those years that you've been following sports in Regina, you must've had a few fun events that you were a part of that. If you think back, you go, gosh, I was lucky to be there. Yeah. Um, 2013 Grey Cup, I mean, that's still incomprehensible to me. I mean, growing up, I remember asking mom, did the Riders, the Riders won a Grey Cup? And she goes, yeah, 1966. Well, I was two, no recollection of that. Oh, I, I was told I did watch the game. I was at the home of Margaret and Borden Bashinsky on Academy Park Road. They were across the fence from us on Acadia Drive. And I watched the game sitting beside Jane Bashinsky, who was born, I think, within a week or two of, of me. So Jane and I watched the game together. I don't think I, I, I like to think, I, I didn't really date much despite that auspicious start at age two, watching a Grey Cup with Jane Bashinsky. I think it was, <laughs> it was a, <laughs> it took me until 35 to get married, but uh, Jane and I watched a Grey Cup together when I was two. I remember always asking mom about this mythic, what I thought, thought was a mythical Grey Cup victory. Like I still couldn't relate to it. The Riders won a Grey Cup. I mean, I grew up and the Riders lost the Great Cup in 72. And I was, mom and I were at the game in Toronto in 76 when the Riders lost, etc. So I kept hearing about this Great Cup that supposedly the Riders had won. I didn't uh, actually witness it. To not only 
two things I never thought I would see at one point in my life were the Rough Riders winning a Grey Cup, and who would have thought there'd ever be a Grey Cup played in Regina? Well, it turns out they won one in Regina. And Tom Hanks was here that day. I mean, it was just, and it was an absolute storybook. And it was four years after the 13th Man thing. So all the subplots of all the things I've seen in Regina, I mean, I don't think the they could win another Grey Cup at, at home, but there'll never be one like winning it uh, at Taylor Field, the last chance they would have had to do it. As far as away from Regina, I'm not sure anything will top the, the trip to Green Bay in 2006 for John Ryan's first NFL game. That was the coolest thing ever. It was such a great assignment that when I got back, I volunteered to pay back the leader post for the, for the expenses for the trip because I said that was not an assignment, that was a holiday. And I'm, I'm actually embarrassed to claim this on expenses. Unfortunately, they, uh, they told me, no, that's okay, go ahead and file. But uh, uh, it was that. I remember getting on a plane at Austin Straubel Airport in Green Bay to, to leave Green Bay, and I had tears in my eyes because I had to go home. I just loved, nothing against going home, but I just had such an amazing three or four days in, in Green Bay. It was just, it was the coolest trip ever. I guess those would be the biggies. I mean, there's, there's been a couple of Olympics. Uh, Lately World Series in, in, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania in 2002 was absolutely cool. There's, there's been more than I could ever have dreamed of and more than I deserved. But that Ryder game in 2013, my goodness. And, and the, the, the Green Bay trip where everything was great except for the actual football game. Cause I think the Packers lost 27 nothing or 29 nothing. My first chance at the Lambeau Leap, I never saw one. <laughs> and uh, and here's the dog. <laughs> Hi, Candy. This is a podcast, P-A-W-E-D cast. <laughs> For those of you who are listening, uh, my dog just got back from a walk with my wife and is now mobbing me on the recliner. If you hear heavy breathing, it's, it's the dog panting after her walk. So there's the play-by-play of Candy, our foster dog. And there's her, you can hear, the jangling you can hear is her dog license. So we can now prove she's a dog because she's licensed. So You talk about the uh, 2013 Grey Cup, and my fondest memory from that game, other than being petrified about what could happen, was when the entire Rough Rider football team ran out onto the field just after the first two players were announced, Yeah, and that place erupted, and I thought the building was going to collapse. Yeah. It was just unbelievable. I covered a couple of three-win rider teams, and I was terrified when those teams ran onto the field for different reasons. Uh, but, uh, and I saw both two and 14 teams in 79 and 80, but that was such an amazing day. It's, it's hard to believe it was eight years ago or you know, coming on eight years ago now because I can, I, can just, I can just take you through the entire day. I'm not sure, I don't, not sure I can tell you about last Wednesday with any precision, but I remember Grey Cup Day 2013, just every little element about it. You know, waking up that day and thinking, history is going to be made today. The mere fact that the Riders are playing in, Grey Cup, in a Grey Cup in, at home is, is, is a milestone. I think the general assumption was that they would win, but you could never be too presumptuous with, when you're thinking about the Rough Riders, and especially in Grey Cups. And I thought, wouldn't it just be the cruelest knife twist, twist of all for them to get to the Grey Cup, have that amazing Darian Durant game against BC in the, uh, East, in the West semifinal, and then, then to blow out Calgary at McMahon Stadium, that powerhouse Calgary team, and then come here and lose the Grey Cup at home, I thought there haven't been many types of misfortune that haven't befallen the Rough Riders in a Grey Cup game. So I, I remember waking up that morning and thinking, okay, well, this would be a new one to add to the list. It'd be really cruel, especially only four years after the 13th man. And then 31-6 to six at halftime kind of allayed those fears. 
But then Hamilton made it 31-15. Henry Burris scored, and, and they got the convert. And I thought, okay, there's plenty of time left in the game. And I thought, uh, okay, well, Montreal was trailing 27-11 to 11 with 10, just over 10 minutes left. And uh, so, hmm, 27-11, to 11, 16 points. And, uh, and suddenly the Grey Cup was at, was at 16 points, 31-15, I think. And I thought, um, hmm, this couldn't happen to the Rough Riders at home, could it? What, if they blew a 31-6 halftime lead in a home field Grey Cup, there just might, no, might be not, no salvaging this for anybody. Thinking back four years, this, this isn't going to happen again, is it? And then Corey Sheets, that Corey Sheets run on second and 19. And he gets 21 yards. Amazing block by Taj Smith to make the difference between, what, third and three and first and ten. And that ended up in a Chris Milo field goal that devoured some time. And that's where you kind of knew that, okay, no, this is going to happen. But it was nice for the fans of Saskatchewan, to, for, the, for the riders to win a great cup. Not only win a great cup, but I think have a long time to savor it before the final gun. Um, you know, I mean, 66, they, they were dominant in the, in the first the second half of the game, but they didn't really salt it away until the George Reed touchdown run well into the fourth quarter. And 2007 went down to the rider, went right down to the wire. Uh, of course, so did uh, 1989. But this one, people could really revel in it. And I remember I was in the press box and I was getting texts from people just telling me what it meant to them, from them for them to be there to see this. Even from my wife, she'd flown to Calgary for the 2009 Grey Cup and was in the stands for that infamous game so she was texting me and she was sitting beside my friend uh lori lori detillo who was who had flown in from vancouver for the game and lori uh, is a huge rider fan and she, she'd she'd uh, come in all the way from vancouver just to see this and my sister was at the game and things like that it was just it was really a celebration with friends i had to kind of keep my my mind occupied with what i was going to write because i figured this is something that might actually get read riders win great cup at home yeah it, like, I can't really blow this one, can I? And uh, so, uh, but I just remember just the whole celebration. And after that, it's a blur. As soon as the game ended, I just buried my nose in the computer and just type, 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 type. And every, I, I didn't see Darian Durant lift the cup until I saw it on TV because I was too busy writing. I, I, I wish I'd taken a few seconds just to, just to see that live, but I never did. I just wrote furiously up until deadline. And then I remember looking up, looking in the distance to my right, and I could see everything that was going on near Albert Street and Saskatchewan Drive, and you could see the lights and everything, and just like, this city's going crazy. But I never really had that moment after the game. I, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. I didn't give myself 10 seconds just to savor it a little bit. That's a really long answer. My, maybe you should do the, the podcast with my dog. She's much more much cuter and uh, much more intelligent, and she's more inclined toward brevity. <laughs> CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. We have to change gears a little bit because those are amazing memories and I feel like I'm raining on the parade, but we do have the CFL talking to the XFL and more and more rumors circulating that it's a deep dive into merger or a new league, if you want to call it that. What's your take on all of this discussion as it pertains to 
the CFL, the XFL, a new league, you go anywhere you want. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a complex and wide-ranging discussion, Don, and a lot of it is based upon assumptions or presumptions because uh, nobody who is actually a party to the negotiations is really talking right now. Uh, so I think speculation sometimes can get out of control and, and, and sometimes, especially if you're an old gargoyle of a traditionalist like me, maybe maybe you, the emotions get out of control and you start fearing the worst. I mean, the worst would be for there to be no football, period. And if the XFL can be the salvation of the CFL when there otherwise wouldn't be one, I suppose that's 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 better than nothing. But I'm not the demographic the Canadian football is looking for. Uh, I'm well past that demographic that they that has basically eluded them for a long time. But it's still a significant fan base of, of people who are a little younger than me. Most are younger than me. And uh, that's still a significant core. It's not enough to keep the business going at the level that uh, that it needs to be at. But it's still a lot, there's still a lot of people who love the CFL and uh, love its distinctiveness and love the three downs and the big field and the and even the rouge and the, the the motion and and everything what worries me is if, if you merge with the xfl just to keep going well maybe that sustains the league but what are you sustaining is it anything that's recognizable is it anything that's embraceable if it's just going to be another four down game why watch it college football would be uh an option that people i think would would gravitate to more readily well they certainly do in the states and uh, the NFL is the NFL, this colossus. If you're just going to be a four-down minor league or lower-tier NFL, where's the, where's the niche? What is a compelling reason to watch if you're just mimicking the NFL but with players who aren't as good? That troubles me. And I think the, there's, there's certainly fears about what the Canadian content would be in the event of a merger. Uh, are there enough Canadian players to stock, say, 12 teams or 18 teams uh, and uh, and the American teams, I don't think, would really feel that compelled to, to use Canadians. So what does this mean for the Canadians within the league? And then what does that mean for Canadian football in general and, and, the, and the feeder systems? And Maybe I'm focusing too much on the possible consequences, real or imagined, and not on the, the benefits. Again, I'm a traditionalist, and I'm one, I'm one who's grown up loving the CFL because of its quirkiness and because of the fact that it's it's different. I love the NFL. I love the CFL. I'm not I'm not uh, even condemning four down football. I just I just like the fact that the CFL is different. If it loses a lot of its distinctiveness, what's left? What are you preserving? This might be the only way to do it. If you look at the economic realities that the Canadian Football League is facing, they're so harsh and and it wasn't a picnic before the pandemic. I mean, there were signs that the business model was certainly in need of repair and in need, in need of addressing uh, before the pandemic. Look at the Rough Riders. They only had one regular season sellout in 2019 with a new stadium, a charismatic quarterback, and a first-place team. I think the alarm bells were already ringing, not, not necessarily at a rate where they were at a volume where they're resonating, but, but there were certainly signs that, uh, of decline when the riders couldn't, they couldn't sell out a game on a Saturday afternoon that if they win, they, they get first place. They were, they were well short of a sellout for that one. That was a sign that even here, the supposed heartline of the Canadian Football League, there's problems. And, uh, and now, I mean, it's a, that's nothing compared to what they're going through. Just, Edmonton's losing 7 million and the Bombers lose 7 million and, and who knows what will be announced when the Rough Riders have their annual, annual general meeting in, in June. They need the kind of infusion that perhaps only the XFL 
if so inclined, can give them. It might be their only go-to in this situation. What are they losing in order to simply remain alive? So I, I'm all, I'm really conflicted. I'm all over the place on this one. And I, I'm quick to admit it. I just, uh, I want to see Canadian football continue, but to what extent will it be Canadian football if it is preserved? And nobody's saying. The imagination runs wild and sometimes you know, the whole whole debate uh, gets away from you a bit. Now you're not even sure whether you're talking about something that's feasible uh, or a realistic outcome or something that you've just imagined. Um, but I, they wouldn't be talking to the XFL if, uh, to the, as seriously as they have been if, if, it, uh, if it wasn't dire or very close to it. Financially, what does the XFL bring? They, they don't have a television contract they can rely upon to get their revenue streams up and going. Other than merchandising and betting, I know there's a wealth yeah. that's there in terms of capital with the, the three parties that own the XFL. How much do they want to fork over just to prop everything up until they get a TV contract? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many maybes there. It's not like there's any talk of the CFL merging with a league that's established. What are you? What would they be merging with? You can look at it and say, okay, the XFL in 2001, maybe it was just too gimmicky. They had the wrong approach. They were trying to basically put it, make it WWE or WWF or whatever it was called at the time on a football field. And okay, maybe write that off as just a bad experiment. Maybe you could write off what happened in, in 2020 by saying, okay, the, the pandemic did it. And uh, maybe it just didn't get a fair shot. And the TV ratings were pretty good. But the, the fact remains is that if Vince, if Vince McMahon, with all his marketing expertise and all his wealth, can't make a go of it and didn't feel it was worth preserving post-pandemic, is that a, is that a bad sign? You know, Danny Garcia and Dwayne Johnson and Redbird Capital have all sorts of resources, but that, that description would also apply to Vince McMahon, and he ditched it. A lot of the attributes that the CFL, I think, is applauding that pertain to these new XFL people would certainly have been associated with Vince McMahon or Mr. McMahon, I guess I should say, using wrestling parlance. Where did that get them? What is it that they're trying to merge with? There's no actual XFL right now. It's, uh, it's more in theory that it, that it is something that's tangible and you're going to potentially sell off 100 plus years of history for something that, that uh, has a history of folding. You know, spring football, and Arash Madani has said it many times, it's been a tough sell in the United States. If you're not the NFL, if you're not NCAA, I don't see. The, I don't sense that there's a voracious appetite for more football in the, in the United States because the, uh, the market is pretty cornered by those monsters known as uh, NCAA and, uh, and NFL. Not only that, high school football is massive down there. That's such a massive undertaking. Again, they, they, I think that the football market is pretty well saturated in the United States. And if you're trying to tap another football federation as your lifeblood i don't know that's a real risk what are their options right now uh would you rather get hit by a truck or a bus that might be what they're looking at right now the xfl is owned by one group the cfl has nine different parties that own their entities yeah how would you ever merge that unless just as a thought you homogenize the ownership in the cfl to make it the same as the xfl yeah, the complexities all over the place. Like, how do you merge so that the you've got rules that are compatible or games that are compatible? I don't. Uh, I mean, you would think it would default to the American rules. If they're, if they're, if you're going to merge, I think the XFL people would be in a better position because I think that whatever money they would 
to get to the Canadian Football League would certainly buy influence. So if they're going to merge, I don't think there's much doubt that it would be a four-down game. I don't think you can put a CFL-sized field in the, in, 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 in the XFL because what stadium down there would accommodate it? The one thing I could see migrating would be the waggle and maybe some of the timing rules. Maybe the Rouge migrates as well. I just don't know how this is all compatible. Even, even when do you have the season? You couldn't start it any earlier than March. And here we are well into May and there's forecast for snow in some parts of Saskatchewan. You've got to be really rare, wary of when you start the season. Remember the first, first game in Toronto Blue Jays history in 1977? It was snow. So that was April. And you weren't alive. <laughs> and uh, I don't think, I think you were far from being born in 1977. When do you start it? And then you, if you want to get a full slate of games and you're going into, well, into the summer, maybe into the September, and then you're com- competing with the NFL. So how, when is your season going to be? Is there that appetite for football north of the border, say April to end of August? The tradition of the CFL is that it always feels like the season begins around Labor Day, and that's when you're going to get your better crowds and, and everything. A lot of people are going away for summer holidays in July and August. I'm not sure you're going to get your peak crowds up here. The logistics of this, if they can figure out something that satisfies or even comes close to satisfying everybody in every market, I, I will be totally shocked. There's just so many moving pieces and so many square pegs that you're trying to jam into round holes. I'm not sure where this is practical. I'm not sure it's worth it from the XFL people's point of view to have just kind of a working agreement or something that's maybe we're just going to share ideas of what's in it for the rock and friends just to kind of have a loose partnership. If they don't absorb it and control it, where's the incentive for them to be involved with it? I think it would have to be all or nothing from, from their perspective or pretty close to all or nothing. And then again, what influence do they wield over the CFL and what is left of it in terms of the way they play and, and what we've come to love. And also, if you change too much, to what extent will you alienate your traditional fan base? And while that's not a tr- sufficient number of people, it's still a huge number of people, and that's your core right now. If you turn them off in order to appease a different core, it just may be a net gain of zero or a net loss. Will people jump on board as quickly? I'm not sure. But what are the alternatives? That's the thing. It's a real conundrum. I, I don't envy anybody involved in, in negotiating this. I just wish we'd hear a little bit more what's going on. A league that is prides itself on being accessible and prides itself on, on communicating with its fans and, and uh, is certainly not uh, held up its end of the bargain throughout all of this. And it's really unfortunate. It, it, it fosters a lot of the speculation, a lot of the guessing, a lot of the rumor mongering that, that goes on. People are curious as can be about what might be happening or what is happening. And nobody's giving us anything near a definitive assessment of what's happening right now. So a lot of it is guesswork. I mean, I've dealt with anxiety in lo- long enough to know that suddenly once you start imagining a worst case scenario, you roll it around your head after a while and suddenly you've almost convinced yourself that it's going to happen. And a lot of times the, the outcome is nearly as bad as what you imagined it would be. In the meantime, you're speculating with yourself. And in the case of this situation, you're speculating with others and writing about it in the paper and on Twitter and in the internet and talking about it on podcasts. And what are we basing it on? Um, nothing really substantial coming from the league office. Who knows? I'm scared for this game that I've grown up loving. I'm also scared that there might not be any game. Hence, I'm kind of conflicted. The CFL, XFL, if they form a new league, sort of glibly said, what if the three owners of the XFL just buy out 
the entire CFL. But there is a practical problem. You have nine governors on one side and one set of governors on the other side. Yeah. I mean, how do the votes go? You've, I, I imagine in these discussions, they, they have to figure this out. And, and even the, the different, you know, the, the disparate ownership models. Uh, you've got nonprofit community-owned teams, and you've got affluent private owners. Are you dealing with constitutional issues with the uh, with the community-owned teams here? I just can't imagine the, the complexities in trying to make this compatible. I just don't know where you're where the end game is. Something that's going to be of wide appeal. I'd love to be wrong. I hope it turns out to be something that's absolutely sensational because the CFL certainly needs it. But just in terms of the organization model and and the CFL has enough issues, enough problems getting anything close to unanimity or majority with the structure as it currently is. And now you're talking about a merger with the XFL. Even if you look at the East-West division in the CFL, if you look past the ownership models, I think it's safe to presume that, that football will always have a place, Canadian football, Canadian-style football, will always have a place in Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Regina. And I think, too, I think you made a good case for Hamilton and Ottawa. But especially in the West, I mean, if you go back to the 40s, early 50s, you had the Western Interprovincial Football Union. Rough Riders, Stampeders, Eskimos, or certainly, sorry, Edmonton and, and Winnipeg. Uh, that's always been the heartland. But they would, I think the fans and the, and the, and the uh, board members in those communities would probably feel different about the traditional CFL model compared to markets where it's just not as beloved and it's not of the same appeal. I mean, BC, who knows what, they don't actually really have an owner right now because of David Braley's passing. So they're in limbo. Montreal, we really can't get a read on the new owners there. They sure signed up in a, at a very interesting time, didn't they? Obviously, MLESE in Toronto is, is uh, not happy with the status quo and is, is said by some to be the initiator or the push behind all this. But it seems to me that it's possible that a minority of the owners in the CFL might hold a majority of the influence because if you look at the troubled markets and if let's say that Toronto, Montreal are the two of the drivers behind these negotiations, the CFL needs them in some cases, even if seven teams might not be on board with this idea. What if uh, Toronto and Montreal are so adamant about pursuing this and maybe, maybe not so inclined to continue otherwise, well, then you face the prospect of losing teams if you don't follow through. Two or three teams might be driving the bus, and we're, whereas five or six might not agree, but they might be pulled along with it. And again, this is all perhaps wild speculation, but that's where the imagination runs wild, and you, you really start wondering where this is all going. And it seems lost in the conversation sometimes is whether, whether they're actually going to play this year. Remember, for proper physical distancing, if you're close enough to shake hands, you're too close. The recommended distance in CFL terms is two yards. Don't get a no yards penalty. Make sure you stay back at least two yards to maintain proper physical distancing. NDAs aside, did the CFL take the right track by not saying anything? We had that circular reference on March 10th, talking about talking, and we've not heard anything since. Even on the CFL draft night, yeah. the commissioner never said boo about what was going on. It was Dave Naylor who did all the reporting. Yeah. 
And that's where it's come from. And Dave is so well sourced. Thank goodness, not for Dave, not for Farhan Lalji, not Three Down Nation. They're getting a lot of the information via their connections. But I find it ironic and a little contradictory that the first announcement that came from the Canadian Football League regarding this, and they said they did this on the in, in the interest of con- transparency. Well, where's transparency been since then? Your stakeholders are your fans. And they have not been given any assurance that there's going to be games this year, nor have they been given anything other than the ridiculous talking about talking pablum regarding the uh, the nature of the discussions with the XFL. These are your customers. If I was still a ticket-buying Rough Rider fan, Rough Rider football coursing through my veins as it is, and I feel you know just appalled by it. But if I'm actually investing some money in this right now and then hearing nothing from them, what kind of loyalty does that engender? What kind of statement is that making? What are you saying to your customers who have stuck with you thick and thin? Granted, there aren't enough of them, but they've been such an amazing fan base. They've responded in some cases to telethons, not once, but twice. And maybe if they're uh, of a different vintage, maybe they chipped in the early 60s when the Rough Riders were taking grain in return for uh, <laughs> for tickets. This league has got such a devoted fan base and, and they're not being done justice by the manner in which they're being communicated with or I, I suppose not communicated with. What are we hearing right now that really breeds loyalty or confidence? Just tell us what's going on. Where's I'd love to have a situation where the commissioner or some representative of the league was just a straight shooter and said, here's what's going on. I'd love it if there was a Bill Baker in the commissioner's chair right now. He's not going to sugarcoat anything, and he's just going to tell you exactly how, it's, how it is, as was the case in 1987 when the riders had their telethon. Bill Baker didn't pull any punches. This is what they're going through. 19, uh, 1996-97, Fred Wagman was the riders' uh, president. It was the same with Fred. This is the situation we're in. This is what we're trying to do. None of this double talk, none of these catchphrases, just realism. Let's have that, please. I have a vested interest in saying that, of course, because of what I do for a living. And I I like it when people are talking about things that uh, provide information. I mean, the information business. Don't feed me talking about talking. Let's give us something tangible. Give us something honest. Yeah, there's non-disclosure agreements, but what cost to your credibility? That's that's a question I would ask. The longer this just goes on without really keeping your your constituents, your stakeholders informed, after everything that they've absorbed uh, over the last year and a half, near last nearly a year and a half or so, anyway, what is there to keep them interested? What will be left if they just keep ignoring the most valuable people that they have, and those are the loyal fans who love the CFL. And they are not being well served right now. 2021, we haven't seen a schedule, at least a revised schedule as of yet. They still hope that August is going to happen, but we're hearing from different provinces that no permissions have really been signed. Is 2021 still up for grabs? I'd love to be optimistic. The last press release the CFL put out, they said, that I think it began with, you know, we will play CFL football in 2021. And then it was if, 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 if. So they, it began with a what looked like a definitive declaration. I saw that. And I thought, okay, good. This is what we've been waiting to hear, waiting to read. And then after that, it was, okay, you need significant crowds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And after that, you realize it was no different than what they were saying a year ago. And when, when it really feels like they're no further ahead than they were a year ago, we know how that turned out. I think that breeds an uncomfortable feeling. And you have certain pockets within the league offering assurances. You've heard that from, for example, Wade Miller in Winnipeg played Craig Dickinson tweeted something Bob Young in Hamilton and that's nice but why isn't this coming from the league office 
who's in charge here? Give us something. Talk to the fans. Yeah, the media is a conduit, so I have something to gain by the league actually talking about something, but put it on Twitter, put it on CFL.ca, circumvent the media if you want, but tell the fans what's going on. And I think it would at least put the damper on some of this speculation that may be uh, uh, wild and maybe totally off base, but it's nonetheless exists and they're doing nothing to control the message. In a day and age when so many sporting leagues are fanatical and obsessed with, with controlling the message, the CFL is allowing this one to get out of control. Why is this happening? In a league where, in a small league where the last thing you just have to worry about is communication, accessibility. That's been everything. Everything the CFL has stood for for so many years has been the intimacy, uh, the relationships between the teams and the fans, the players and the fans. You've got commissioners. Mark Hohan once upon a time would have beers with fans and buy everybody around. And you could see, you could run into Mark Cohan at all the Grey Cup venues. Randy Ambrosi is a very convivial individual. He likes to socialize. He does Randy's road trip every year. It's all predicated on FaceTime with fans. But now the league is facing, its, I think, the biggest crisis it's ever encountered. And where is Randy Ambrosi? I'm convinced that he's a good man. I'm convinced that he means well. I also know that he's answering to nine governors. And there's different structures everywhere. So there's only so much he can say. And sometimes he ends up wearing a lot of the criticism because that's the nature of his job. He's the boss, but he's got bosses. You know, I, I legitimately believe that Randy Ambrose has got everybody's best interest in heart, but somebody's getting bad advice and somebody's dispensing bad advice here. If Randy Ambrose were to just have even a weekly town hall and let people know what's, where things are going, I, I think that would gain him a lot of mileage with people, gain the league a lot of mileage with people. They just keep updating people. He's a, he's a likable guy. He's a relatable guy. He's a sociable guy. In so, in so many ways, he's the perfect person to have in the CFL office at a time of crisis because he's he's just a he's an ordinary guy. He likes to mingle with the fans. That's been a lot of his identity, and that's been a lot of uh, other commissioners' identity. So why aren't we seeing that now? It can't just be a Randy Ambrosi thing because it just seems so contrary to the persona that he is is established. Uh, during his tenure as a commissioner. He's a very sociable, nice man. So why, are, why, why isn't that being used to the league's advantage right now? Get him out there everywhere and just talk to the fans. If there's only so much, so much you can say, fine, but give them more than, more than talking points that don't say anything. When do you think we'll get an announcement? This can't come together quickly, I wouldn't think. I mean, the other question is, is when is the XFL ever going to play again? It's not like they've got firm plans for 2022. So they have to get their act together. Where are their teams going to be located? Who are their coaches going to be? Et cetera, et cetera. And now the complicating factor is what type of football will they be playing? They've got a league to organize, not necessarily from scratch, but pretty close to it. Even on that end, how much can be really revealed? I would think that once the football gets going, and presumably it does, and hopefully it will, I think a lot of this talk will maybe disappear through November, I guess December now. Going into the new year, I'm sure we'll start to hear a lot more because we'd have to by then. If they can get through this year, then they really have some decisions to make early in 2022. And what if this all comes to nothing, that they walk away from the room, shake hands and say, thanks, but no thanks? Yeah. What, what, what's the uh, leftover for the CFL? Well, Dave Naylor has, has said, and I, I agree with him, the options facing the Canadian Football League are to get bigger or to get smaller. Not necessarily in terms of the number of teams there are, but in terms of the scale of the operation. Uh, I mean, Randy Ambrosi and so many people in the league have talked so often about the, the business model not being sustainable. Well, suddenly if there's no hope with the XFL and if something like the new gambling 
possibilities don't end up being a cash cow and maybe they might contribute to the league's ability to be self-sustaining but if if not what do they do i think they just have to scale down to to meet the market what's your lowest common denominator with the crowd you're probably looking at toronto what 10 12 15000 you have to tailor your expenses i think across the board where teams can at least break even with 12 13 14000 people it's tough to do that when you're only talking about nine maybe 10 home games a year it's not like junior hockey where you you know if you get 5000 people 34 35 times you're doing well uh there's a limited amount of opportunities to to get people in the stands but i think you just have to scale the business model back to the point where it puts some semblance of a league together even if you move practice times to late in the afternoon like was once the case then players could hold down jobs during the season and uh, this was the case when Ronnie and George played and football was pretty good back then if the players aren't entirely dependent upon their football income maybe they can play for less while still using football as a vehicle to parlay them to, to success if you can build a kind of model where the players can have some possibilities some opportunities for income away from the field maybe you aren't as dependent upon uh, they aren't as dependent upon the football salary maybe you can just scale it down to where revenue meets expenses and that wouldn't seem to me to be anywhere near 20,000 the other variable here is how do we really know what the anticipated crowds would be post pandemic because of the devastation that's been wrought by covid-19 when you look at businesses well that relates to sponsorships that relates to advertising you look at individuals who work for those businesses who who may or who may not be working for them anymore or people whose own businesses have been ravaged what will people have at their disposal to spend on canadian football you know around here especially they've they've generally delivered but will that be the case uh, post pandemic can you count you know scott mo is talking about the prospect of a full or nearly full mosaic stadium and and they didn't sell out a game that they won to to earn first place in 2019 now people might th- presume that there's such a pent up demand for football that given an opportunity to pack the place they might do it but yeah, i don't know um and people's pocketbooks have taken taken a hit maybe the difference between wants and needs might tip a little more toward the uh the needs side for the CFL's liking and maybe football as much as we enjoy it is not going to be viewed as a, a necessity but as a luxury while people try to spin out of the pandemic economically and there's also the risk that maybe people have just learned to live without it the CFL also runs the risk of the outside out of mind scenario and that's a, that also goes back to the to the lack of communication the lack of updates i think they just let other sports other teams control the control the market and feed the sports fans the cfl's not going to talk about what they're doing well i can sit on the recliner any night i want and i can watch the national hockey league the national basketball association major league baseball certainly got enough to feed my interest as a sports fan i'd like to follow the canadian football league more than i like to follow anything but if it's not there there are things to watch and to what degree are we becoming inured to just things not being there that we once thought we couldn't live without I mean, 2 years ago if somebody would have told you that this would have happened oh no how would i get through this well i guess what we did it isn't pleasant and we sure miss it but we've got through it maybe we've learned that we can live without some of the things that we once thought were absolutely essential and we're talking about the diehards there now if you're the marginal fan maybe they just fall off the table entirely so what kind of customer base would the cfl be returning to i still think it's a scotch when it would be good but would it be great again 
And then in, in markets where the uh, interest isn't as passionate, eek. I hate to sound like a doomsayer, but I mean, what what is there that there you can, one can really click their heels about right now? I'm I don't I don't have really have the uh, physical ability to do that anymore anyway. So. All right, well we'll get you out of here. Where do people find and follow you? Well, I'm on Twitter uh, at Rob Vanstone, leaderpost.com. I'm all over that thing. R Vanstone at postmedia.com. If anybody wants to to send me an email, I'm always happy to to hear from people. That's kind of where I live. Not physically in the Lear Post building like I once did. It's still coursing through my veins, and I, I'm always happy to hear from 99.99% of the people <laughs> that, that contact me. So it's gratifying the people ever want to chat. I've said many times there's nothing more we can ask for, for people than for their time because you can't get the time back. And when you're in this line of work, that's what you're asking. You're asking, even if it's just two or three minutes to read an article, that's time. And it's the most precious thing we have in a lot of ways. So I'm grateful for the people who take the time to contact me and I, I always make a special effort to respond. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's uh, really nice to chat with you, Don. I look forward to doing this anytime you'd like to, to follow up. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.